All right, praise God. We have been going through the book of Revelation again on Sundays, and we are in chapter 21. Uh, this is a kind of a revelation study in a way, but we're going to continue doing that on Sunday. This is kind of a side study. I did a uh, teachings recently on the day of the Lord. You remember that? And uh, I mentioned that we would have a message on how long is the day of the Lord. Amen? And uh, some have it as one specific day at the end of the age, and I do believe there's truth to that. Others have it as the whole tribulation period. The 70th week, 70th week of Daniel is the day of the Lord. We looked into that. Well, it's set Jim's commentary on that. <laughs> Unbiblical, yes. Uh, however, we really want to look at this because uh, it's really kind of fascinating when you really peer into uh, the day of the Lord and... Uh, it actually is, I believe, it can literally refer to the last day when the Lord returns. Uh, Jesus talked about all those who believe have been, that have been given to him, the believers, right, will be resurrected on the last day that is at his return. And we look forward to that. He said that over and over again, by the way. Just go through John chapter 6. He talked about the resurrection on the last day, on the last day, about four times in John 6. And then Mary got it, you know. I say, Martha, she said, I know, and she wanted Lazarus to be risen. And he was like, well, you know, he's going to raise. And she said, I know he's going to raise on the last day. It's because she li was listening that time, right? She didn't always listen very good, but she did a good job there. And uh, by the way, if we rise on the last day and the dead in Christ rise first, right? Uh, and then the rapture, that means the rapture is also on the last day because the dead in Christ rise before the actual catching up of the rest of the believers, which is on the last day, is not the last day, not seven years before the last day. So we want to look at the day of the Lord. And I don't have time because I've got about 15, 16 pages of notes to go through with you. And a lot of it's scripture that I have, uh, uh, you know, uh, copied and pasted scripture. So uh, there won't be as much commentary. There'll be some commentary, but I'm going to let the scripture do a lot of the talking. And hopefully I'm faithful to what it says. Uh, Lord, we just pray for your strength and your wisdom in Jesus' name. And I just encourage you guys, uh, because the Bible talks about this coming terrible day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's judgment. The day of, it's called the day of the Lord. It's called the Lord's day. The day of Christ. It's called the, the day of his wrath. It's got different names, but it's a time when he comes back. Right now, we're in the day of man. The tribulation period when the Antichrist is reigning, that if any day was the day of man, that'll be during those last few years of human history. The last three and a half years referring to the great tribulation period because the number of a man, 666, will be given out in the man's name and he will be heralded and people will say, who can make war with him? Last time we talked about this, or I think we've been here a couple times now, uh, which fits really well because we're looking at the new heaven and the new earth in the book of Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 on our Sunday studies. Well, the day of the Lord, I think you're gonna, it's going to be pretty eye-opening today. How long is the day of the Lord? You know, And I, I wanted to encompass it with one message as well, with uh, the pre-wrath rapture view, and kind of look at that at the same time. But the more I got into it, the more I realized it is going to be just too, too much. Too much. I looked at it, man, I thought, man, I, you know, I had a hunch that might happen that I might have to just make the pre-wrath rapture view in contrast with the historical, classical, premillennial, post-trib view. In contrast, very, a lot of similarities, but some differences. Uh, pre-wrath brethren are very close to the post-trib historical view. And we'll look at that and contrast the two and, and see if the pre-wrath 
view holds water compared to the post-trib view. But I couldn't do it them both because you're going to see by the end of the study, you're going to see, man, you threw pre-wrath in there. I might get some in there. And I actually worked on pre-wrath, that message, for, I don't know, a few hours today. But that's going to be in another uh, message. I want to talk about how long is the day of the Lord, okay? Now, the day of the Lord is going to be gnarly, okay? It says you, it'd be like you're running from, you know, a, a lion just to run into a bear, you know? And it's going to be a day of great darkness, and a day of great judgment. And uh, we read about it throughout Scripture. It's called the terrible, the great and terrible day of the Lord by Joel. And in the book of Acts chapter 2, when Peter quotes Joel. Now, last time we looked, because there's so many Scriptures that talk about the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, and that's the day when Christ returns, right? And oftentimes it's given in the context of him coming for believers, so that presents a problem for those who believe that the rapture is before the seven-year tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel. So the 70th week of Daniel, remember there was going to be 69 weeks. I don't want to lose you, but just you'll pay attention. You might miss a couple things because some of this is reiteration or just for those who know and we've studied. But if you haven't learned these things, it takes some time. So don't get thrown off. We'll return to stuff that you can understand. But really, you need a desire to want to learn and grow. But uh, Daniel talks about 70 weeks, amen? 70 weeks from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. You remember that? That there will be 70 weeks until what would happen? Until righteousness would come in. There'd be an end of sin, all these things. But there would be 69 of these weeks of seven-year periods, 483 years. Okay, uh, if you go by the lunar calendar, which they were using, which start at 444, 445 BC, after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which was given to Artaxerxes in Nehemiah, the Old Testament, chapter 2. Remember, Daniel's in captivity. How long? We're, our, our, our city's in ruin, you know. Our, we're, 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 under, we're being chastened, and the 70 years, you know, is about up or so. And guess what? The Lord says yes, but uh, there'll be a decree of 62 and seven sevens, he says, in verses 24 through 27 of Daniel 9, from that decree to, to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, which was given by King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, secular historians put at 444, 445 B.C., that brings you to about 32 or 33 A.D. And that's right when he says Messiah will be cut off. Okay, it's hard to be exacting in the years, but nobody can deny it's right there at Christ's crucifixion, you know. Uh, but it's fascinating to me because... He talks about that one week that's left, that one seven-year period that's left. We call that the 70th week of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, it says of the Antichrist that he will make a firm covenant with the many, that many could refer to them nations, and it'll be for seven years, seven-year deal. You know, some think it might be the Abraham Accords. Or, but by the way, that, that term confirm or make a firm covenant can also not just mean make, he signs a brand new covenant. It could also speak in linguistically from the Hebrew that he firms up an agreement that was already, already made. He solidifies it. So it could be that there's an accord in process or hanging there or being ready to be signed or, and that a nation, some nations move in and they sign this thing. You know, that's what, you know, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We just know that there will be a seven-year period. And in the middle of those seven years, the Antichrist sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. 
That is in Daniel chapter 9. It refers to this prince who would abominate the sanctuary. Jesus said, as it was spoken through the prophet Daniel, in chapter 24, verses 15 through 17, when you see the abomination of desolation, stand in the holy place to split those in Judea, to leave. Because the Jews will be the first targets. And then those who have the testimony of Jesus, according to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Well, that last three and a half years brings you to the very end of the tribulation period. In that last three and a half years, Jesus specifically refers to that as the great tribulation. Because after 15 through 17, when he says you see the abomination and desolation split, around verses 21 and 22, he says there'll be so much destruction we like no time ever in history before or after. If those days were not cut short, no flesh would be saved. Then he said, then, then, in reference to the Antichrist being revealed in the temple, there will be great tribulation. So the last three and a half years technically is what we call the great tribulation period. The entire 70 years we call the 70th week of Daniel. Still future. Are you with me? You, you don't even have to grasp all of this to get the, the, the message that we're going to give. But it's important to understand this because if you don't understand where the distinctions are made in Scripture, you can really be led astray. Happens all the time. There's people that, because we're called, in fact, uh, we were looking at that seven-year tribulation period, that seven, and we can call it the seventh week of Daniel. That's more technical. In the last three and a half years, the great tribulation period. I don't have a hard time with us calling the seven years the tribulation period because there'll be birth pains and stuff in the first three and a half years, amen? So I don't object to that terminology. Uh, but technically, the last three and a half years is what's the great tribulation. When the mark of the beast comes out, you can't buy or sell unless you have this number of his name or, you know, or his name, the name of the beast. And so forth. It's going to be crazy times. However, is that seven-year period the day of the Lord? Okay, we looked at that, you know, a couple times ago. And I'll just make a few points. We know that's not the day of the Lord. Because one of the two witnesses, whether it's literally Elijah, some believe it'll be literally Elijah, maybe pre-tribs. Many pre-tribs believe it'll literally be Elijah during the tribulation period. Many post-tribs believe that too. One of the two witnesses, or he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, like John the Baptist did. Either way, uh, we know that Elijah comes during the tribulation period, or at least in the spirit and power of Elijah, before the Malachi, before the great day and terrible day of the Lord. So when he's there during the tribulation period, he's there before the what? Terrible day of the Lord. Therefore, the tribulation period cannot be the day of the Lord. Number two, we saw that they're going to be saying peace and security. Peace and safety, right? The world's going to be saying peace and safety, you know? Everybody's got their shot, you know? We're safe now, you know, and we've got peace. We're putting away all these Christians and stuff. And wow, man, we have peace and safety or peace and security. And they're all going to be living it up. And then Christ will come like a thief in the night and bring sudden destruction. But it says they'll be saying peace and security or peace and safety before the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, the tribulation period is before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when he comes like a thief in the night, bringing sudden destruction, not a secret rapture. Go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks about how we're going to be raptured, how we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, amen? And then it says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Times and seasons of what? Of the time of the rapture. For while they are saying, peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But we are not the children of darkness, he goes on to say. 
but children of light, that, that they should overtake us as a thief. It's not going to overtake us as a thief because we're watching for the signs of the times. That's why he says, but of the signs of the times, I have no need, you have no need that I write into you. He's referring to Matthew chapter 24 there, when Jesus said he'd come like a thief after the tribulation period. So we know that the day of the Lord is equated with Jesus coming in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he comes like a thief in the night to bring destruction on the wicked. Are you with me? Okay, it's very, very clear. Once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, number three, we know that Paul said concerning Christ's coming and our being gathered together to him, which he calls the day of the Lord in the King James, the day of Christ in most translations. Same, Christ is the Lord, Lord is Christ, amen. He says that day won't happen until two things happen first. There'll be a great falling away, verses three and four, right? In association with the coming of the Antichrist, that's what that falling away is in conjunction with, just like Matthew 24. And there are also, so what else would take place? It says, just like in Daniel 9, just like in Matthew 24, verse 15, the, uh, the Antichrist, the man of sin, will sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Paul said those two events take place before the day of the Lord, which he equates with Christ coming to gather us up to himself. So it's very, very important that we understand that these events, uh, uh, the tribulation does not contain, it's not part of the day of the Lord. One of the scriptures I think is very, very clear on it is during the day of the Lord, it says, who alone will be exalted? The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Amen. Is the Lord alone exalted during the tribulation period? Who's exalted in the world's eyes more than anybody? The Antichrist. They're going to say, who can make war with him? And be taking his mark, you know, be blaspheming God up to the very end, up to the last bowls, the very end of the judgment. They're blaspheming God because they're getting sores in their hands and they're worshiping the Antichrist. Who can make war with him and so forth. And, and they're exalting him. But the Bible says the day of the Lord, only the Lord will be exalted. I'm not going to go through all the scriptures because that was a whole message I gave on that already. But I think by turning to Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16, we have this great day of Christ, the great day of the Lord, the great day of his wrath, it's called as well. Go to Revelation chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. And what, look what happens with the wicked. Verses 15 through 7. Look what happens to them. Verse 15, Revelation 6, 15. This is a picture of the very end. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the, comma and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the what? The great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So what's interesting about this passage is when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be so radical. Those beast worshipers, I mean, keep in mind, the beast worshipers are worshiping the Antichrist and even get together at Armageddon thinking they can fight Christ. And when you read Revelation chapter 17, you know what it says that the ten nations give their power to the beast? It's they, they join the Antichrist to fight against the Lamb. Hey Amen. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, it says. As though they think they're going to be victorious. And they assemble in Megiddo, according to Revelation chapter 16, verses 14 through 16. And when they're there in Megiddo, we have all these nations. Remember our country and a bunch of nations got together over little old Kuwait, you know? Remember that war? Why were we so interested in Kuwait, by the way? It's kind of interesting. Anyway, it's kind of interesting just watching world politics and some of the people in charge are pretty scary, amen? And a lot of that was about the new world order. That's what Bush Sr. was talking about, the new world order. 
had a friend that was there that was a soldier there, and he was there, and George Bush Sr. visited him. And he knew about what the Bible says about this coming new world order. He's there serving, thinking, man, this is, I'm serving my country, you know, and we have some great foundational stuff in our country, right, mixed with some junk, too, with the Masons and all that stuff. But he said he was so discouraged, friend, my, my friend named Mike Johnson. He wrote me a letter, and it just broke my heart, you know, broke my heart for him because he said when he saw the president, you know, Bush Sr., and he said, I want to thank you guys for fighting for the new world order with me, you know. He just, his heart sunk, and his, he was, you know, uh, he, he, he was really, really sad. And it got me sad just reading his letter. And you have to keep your eyes on Jesus, amen. He's the one that's going to bring ultimate peace. And that's going to come at Armageddon when he destroys the wicked nation. And that's man rebelling against God. That's what man does, because it's man's sinful nature. They crucified Christ the first time. So when the day of the Lord comes, it's important to understand in Revelation 19, the beast and the false prophet and their armies are assembled to fight against Christ. And then he comes on his white horse with the armies of heaven. Amen. And they just get defeated. But this is after that. This is the point where, where the leaders and stuff are like crying for the rocks to crush them and hide them for the great day of his wrath because it's come. This is Revelation 19 when he actually comes back with his, the armies of heaven. Okay. And now they realize they're defeated. There's no hope. There's no help. Now, what's interesting about this is how does it describe the setting? Okay, look at verse, 13, verse 12. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Not literal stars. The Greek word used often in Revelation for these are, is asteros, which can refer to different types of heavenly bodies. But there will be a bunch of heavenly bodies. And if you compare this with the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl, because I believe it all describes the same ending with the earthquake and all this stuff going on, at least some of them weigh about 100 pounds each. Can you imagine getting hit by a 100-pound asteroid or, or I should say meteorite of some sort? Okay, that's going to be pretty, pretty ugly. Make sure you're right with Jesus, Amen. And then look what it says, though. It's definitely talking about the end, though, because look at verse 14. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain, every mountain, guys. See the mountains around us? Every one of those. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Oh, I'm going to go to some remote island. No, you want to be raptured at this point. Amen. When Jesus Christ comes back, the dead in Christ rise first, and then we are alive, we caught up the meat in the air. We're not appointed to this wrath. Amen. We're not appointed to any wrath. By the way, there's three aspects of wrath that the Bible designates, distinguishes. There's general wrath right now. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Amen. There's wrath being revealed right now. As we speak, the wrath of God abides on the wicked. And sometimes he pours it out. Sometimes judgment comes now, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And sometimes it comes later for people. Then there's also wrath during the tribulation period. Okay, the seals, the trumpets, the bulls are wrath during the tribulation period. Are we appointed to the general wrath, Revelation or Romans 1.18? No. Are we appointed to the tribulation wrath? Yes or no? Yes or no? No, absolutely not. We're not appointed to wrath. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Amen. Paul said we are appointed unto these tribulations, and many scriptures talk about suffering for believers. And, but, but tribulation and persecution comes from the enemy. And from man, amen? 
the wrath that comes from God is not directed at believers who are cleansed by the blood of Christ, right? We've been, our sins are taken away. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit and we're protected by God. So there's a general wrath that we're not appointed to. Then there's the wrath during the tribulation period that's poured out. But there's a great multitude that no man can number from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue, Revelation 7, that come out of the great tribulation, which means they're in it, and they don't suffer the wrath of God. Do they? The believers don't because they have the blood of the Lamb covering them. The 144,000 Jews don't because they're given the seal of God on their forehead, specifically mentioned, so they don't suffer God's wrath. So he protects us during that, that period of wrath, that, that seven-year period. What a beautiful thing. So we're not appointed to general wrath right now. We're not appointed to wrath that comes during the tribulation period. And we're not, but there's also another aspect of wrath coming, and that is an association with Christ's second coming. Okay? It says he's coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on all those that do not obey the Lord, right? They don't obey the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. They're those that don't know God and don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to be bringing, so that's his second coming wrath. Are we appointed to that wrath as believers? Absolutely not. We'll be caught up to meet him in the air. Amen? And then we'll come with him and he will pour out his second coming wrath. Are you following this so far? So if I asked you what three aspects of the wrath of God are revealed in Scripture and how are they distinguished? Not very hard. There's the general wrath of God. Uh, and sometimes it becomes more specific in certain judgments that take place throughout history. Like what happened with the Israelites when they were spared in the land of Goshen during the ten plagues that came upon Egypt. But there's general wrath, that's, and then there's tribulation wrath, then there's second coming wrath. As believers, we're not appointed to any of his wrath. Amen? Oh, sometimes he spanks us, but that's not to punish us eternally for our sins. That's to discipline us because we're his children. Amen? Because he's a good God. So it's interesting, the sky splits apart like a scroll in verse 14, and it's rolled up, and every mountain, every island are moved out of the places. So, and then the kings of the earth and so forth, they're just like, they're seeing this happen, and Christ comes on his white horse with his armies, and now they're freaking out. They're like, what are we thinking? Our weapons can't stop him. Especially if you're American, and we gave a lot of them to the Afghanis recently, you know? $90 billion worth of them or what have you, you know? But all the nations will bring all their manpower together, all their intelligence and all their genius and all their weapons, all the nations. That's all the nations. That includes this nation will fight against Christ at his second coming. You can only put your hope in Jesus ultimately. Amen. Be thankful that you live in this country and pray that it's free and that we don't become a socialist, a communist country before too long. Amen. You know, vote and, and take a stand for what's right, but make sure the main hill, the, the hill that you die on is the Jesus hill. Amen. For the gospel. Amen. Are you with me? Now, what's interesting is, you know, there's this, the sun becomes black, right? The whole moon becomes like blood. All this happens before, verse 12, 13, 14, right? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's heavy. Why? Because when does this happen? When does this take place? Go to Matthew 24, quickly. Matthew 24, pick it up at verse 29. Describes the same thing. Matthew 24, verse 29. Chapter 24, verse 29. But immediately what? After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be what? Darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. <laughs> Sound familiar? And the powers of heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's them mourning, actually begging, you know, 
praying not to God, have mercy upon us for defying you and taking the mark of the beast. No, they're crying out to the mountains to hide them. Verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Amen. So when is the sky dark? When is the sun dark and the moon doesn't give his light? The stars fall from heaven? Immediately after the tribulation. Okay, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, 12 through 17, is after the tribulation period. It's describing the very end. But it also, you have here Christ's second coming, right? Sun doesn't, sackcloth, moon doesn't give his light. Immediately after the tribulation, right? Then Christ comes back. What do you see in Revelation 6? The same order. What's a, what's a trip about this post-trib view? It's like a hand in a glove. It just always fits. There's no place it doesn't fit. With the other views, there's a lot of places that they don't fit. And that's why they aren't the historical view of the early church. The early church believed in the second coming at the end of the age. It's that, that simple. By the way, this all fits with Joel chapter 2. Listen to this. Verse 31. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Sound, sound correct? So what does it say? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So the adventure reading about Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation, but before the day of the Lord. Do you see that? It's after the tribulation, Matthew 24, 29, but it's before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is when Jesus returns. But the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light and the powers of heaven will be shaken and the scars will fall from heaven. Boom, there are crowds mourning, trumpet, then come the Lord. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord. So we're seeing very, 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 very clearly in Scripture that the day of the Lord is at Christ's second coming, at the end of the age, after the tribulation period. Are you with me? It is not the tribulation period. Show me during the tribulation period where they say, this is actually the day of the Lord right now. No, you have a contradiction. You'd be contradicting a ton of Scriptures. Which I think it's interesting, when I was a new Christian, brand new Christian, the first Bible I got, besides one that was laying around my house, you know, which I had to be careful of because it was a Roman Catholic Bible, and I had to watch out for those books in the middle, the Apocrypha, you know. And I went out to a bookstore and bought my own Bible, and I got a Schofield Reference Bible. Pre-trib, once saved, always saved, all those things. Thankfully, I just read the scripture and not the notes for a while. But, you know, one of his notes was quite interesting, you know, one of Schofield's notes in there. He talks about all the things that have to take place before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he puts the day of the Lord after these tribulation events, even though he's pre-trib. Now, of course, pre-tribbers have corrected him since that time. Quote, unquote, you know. Uh, but I thought, isn't that interesting? So we see these things. Now, the question is, you know, how long is the day of the Lord? Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And when you get there, it's a very beautiful verse. Uh, we should all apply to our lives. It says in verse 15, build, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is Paul to young Timothy, okay, to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. We're to be workmen, working for the Lord. 
Amen? We have a job to do for the Lord, right? And he says, accurately, accurately handling the word of truth, God's word, accurately handling it. If you have the King James and the New King James, it says rightfully, rightly dividing the word of truth. And there's a scholarly debate as to whether the word means to accurately handle the word of truth or it means to actually rightly divide it. Our dispensationalist brothers and sisters love the word, love the King James divide because they look at it as meaning dissecting, you know. And, uh, you know, when you, and like the word dividing means, you know, to make sure, you know, and the way they apply it sometimes is this isn't, you know, the, the Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13 is not for the church and Revelation is not for the church and we got to rightfully divide the word of truth. And then they use this verse kind of as like a hammer to beat up people's head that, you know, almost like it's pontificating because they have no biblical justification to say that those books don't apply to us. Uh, even though uh, uh, the Revelation, read the first chapter, it's addressed to the churches. Read the last chapter, these things Jesus says, I testify to the churches, right? And then uh, the saints are those who are called the bride, you know? And the saints are referred to throughout the tribulation period and so forth. Then Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, we know that the discourse about the end times was directed to Peter, James, John, and Andrew according to Mark 13. And... Those guys were leaders of the early church and they were commanded to teach what Jesus taught them to teach to disciples throughout the world. Amen. So, but I say this because this dispute over uh, this word translated accurately handle or rightfully divide, uh, it can mean to cut straight, to cut straight ways, uh, to proceed in straight paths, hold straight course, equivalent to doing right. To make straight and smooth, to handle the right, to teach the truth directly and correctly. To make straight, cut, to dissect correctly, which I think is interesting because when you look at this word, there's those who are into, into dispensational theology, which love the, many of them, I want to translate it as like it means to divide and cut it up, cut up the word of God and see what fits where. And then you have others, many Calvinists who are into what's called covenant theology, where they say, no, it just means to handle it accurately. And I've studied this word more than once now, you know. And guess what? I've come to the conclusion to actually meet either or. I really can. Because some will say, well, in Paul's day, the usage of it being cut or divide was kind of lost. That may not be true because Clement of Alexandria, now he's one of the early church fathers, he definitely uses it in the context of cutting, you know, when he's quoting that, this verse as well. So, uh, but I don't have a hard time with it, meaning both, because I do believe it's a word that can have both applications. So I do believe it does mean to handle it correctly, to cut straight. To, to, it's used of mining, for instance, and going, making a straight path to uh, a, a piece a, a deep into the earth when you're mining for jewels, you're looking for that mother load, you know? And I love that and when you apply that to the scripture here, you know? Or it's also used in civil engineering of making a straight road, for instance, to a building, which I can understand it, rightfully handle the word of truth, meaning... Be straight with the scripture. I think it's really good where Paul says to the Corinthians not to, uh, uh, you know, he warns about, you know, not twisting the word of God for money, basically, right? Not, not misusing the word of God. So I believe what he, Paul is after here with Timothy, he's not saying have your dispensational charts out, Timothy. I don't believe he's saying that. But also I don't believe he's not I, believe, I don't believe he also doesn't have in mind the idea of understanding what scriptures apply to, in what context to who. 
Okay, because you do have to understand, Paul does come against, in Timothy, those who are misusing the law. The law is not given for the righteous, but for the wicked, and they're, making, they're telling believers that they must keep the law of Moses. So you have to also rightfully understand what fits with who. So I don't have a problem with the covenant theology, because it's kind of interesting how people will choose the meaning of that word. I've just found it very amusing, based on their eschatological viewpoint. If they're dispensational, oftentimes they like the idea of cutting and dividing. That's what that word means, rightfully cut or divide the word of truth. If they're in a covenant theology, no, it means just to handle it accurately, you know? That's almost, it's kind of amusing because it shows how you're, you can have a, a priori, you know, viewpoint where you have biased confirmation based on the eschatological view you have and the way you look at a certain text. And I look at it and I say, hmm, it actually, when I look at the it could actually be used and understood either way. But I do believe mostly, yeah, it's obviously talking about rightfully handling the word of truth, cutting it straight, you know. You want to make sure uh, if you're dissecting someone, you know, a cadaver, and you are in med school, you're not pulling out a chainsaw, right? You want to be very precise, you know. And it actually could mean cutting straight. I think that's a good, and what might Paul have in mind if he was saying cutting straight? And he's talking about a workman. What kind of work did Paul do when he had to work? He was a tent maker. Do you think he had to cut straight, put things together all the time, right? And he's saying we need to be straight with the word of God is what I believe he's saying there. We have to be very, very careful when we approach the word of God. It's in Clement of Alexandria, Stramata, number seven, for instance, where he uses the word in a sense of cutting. So it's interesting. Uh, I like it in the context of mining and, and just being straight with the word of God. And its context. We're going to get into some really heavy stuff, though. And I hope as we begin to, the reason you'll see why I'm bringing you to this verse. We need to really look at Scripture closely, and we need to understand that there are two extremes with regard to handling the Word of God and prophecy. One extreme I already mentioned is, and you know, we're like progressive dispensationalists in a way, some of us, you know. I mean, we believe that God definitely has a plan for Israel still, amen? amen. That's clearly in the Bible, amen? And we do believe, uh, uh, there's no doubt about that, that, that God's got a plan. He's bringing, he brought them back into the nation. Uh, and I, I think that's a big coincidence, the hundreds of nations that have existed, that's the only nation that has these fulfilled scriptures that are fulfilling what it says about them becoming a nation again and hated around the world. I mean, I don't even know how you can even, you'd have to just, Ignore a lot of scripture, ignore reality of what's happening. And, uh, but there's, you know, that extreme within dispensationalism, and I don't call myself just a, you know, quote-unquote dispensationalist because I see problems with what usually comes under the banner of dispensationalism, and that's the idea that God has two totally distinct programs for the rest of eternity, and that the Jews and the church will be separate forever. And one, and one group's going to be in the, in the new heaven. And the new other group's going to be on the new earth. And we'll be separated. When I read in Revelation chapter 22, which we're going to be studying pretty soon because we're in chapter 21, that the bride is made up of who? Has the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the church and the names of the 12 tribes. It's all one bride. The Lord is not a bigamist, an eternal bigamist with two wives. Okay? That's what a lot of dispensationalists believe, that he's going to have these two wives forever. It's not what the Bible teaches. We're one body in Christ. That's a great mystery. And we read about Ephesians, that there's one body, amen. Now God is still working on, the, on, on, on Israel, and they have a place. And I believe they'll uh, not only be incorporated into the body of Christ, but I also believe that they will be fulfilling the Davidic promises 
uh, that we read about in the Old Testament as well in the Millennial Kingdom. So there's a lot of clarity, I think, in the Scripture. We just have to accept what it says. I don't know why people have to go to one extreme or the other. But then you have the other extreme in covenant theology, which many Calvinists hold to, that God's done with Israel, that the church has replaced Israel, and that all of the promises uh, that were made to Israel have been, there's been this total and absolute transference of all the promises of Israel that are now for the church. It's funny, they want all the promises, but they don't want the curses in the Old Testament. And that's not biblical. That's actually very, very unbiblical. I don't know how you could read Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 14, and think that God's done with Israel, and a lot of other passages as well. Just read Zechariah 12. It's very clearly the end when he fights on behalf of Israel and the nations surrounded. That's clear. I don't know how you can read Romans chapter 11 and believe in covenant theology and that God is done with Israel. So both those are two extremes. So we have to rightfully divide the word of truth. In fact, you have to be very careful when you go to Scripture and say, who is he talking to in a particular context? Now, some of our dispensational brothers, they such, take such a hatchet to God's word, they're not rightfully dividing the word of the truth. They're not taking a scalpel. They're not saying, they're taking, they are taking a chainsaw. I mentioned to you when I debated Dr. Stauffer in Colorado and we had that debate, and it was a great debate. It's called the Great Debate, Great Rapture Debate. I mentioned that, uh, you know, he had a book, and I showed, photocop- I showed pictures of it, slides of it, where several of the books in the New Testament are not really for the church, just for the Jews. Several of them, First and Second Peter, Hebrews, half of the book of Acts, the book of Revelation, you know. James, other books aren't for the church. The Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and not for the church, they're for the Jews, you know. And I have to say, in fairness to Dr. Stauffer, after the debate, he sent us a letter and says that he was changing those things in that book, which I think was called Rightfully Dividing the Word of Truth or something like that, the name of the book. And he mentioned to us, he asked us if uh, we wanted to help him edit it, you know, which I thought was kind of him, but we kindly said, just, you know, just left it there. No, it's okay, because we would edit out the preacher rapture too, you know, which wouldn't this the whole point of his, his book, you know, and we love him and we just pray that, you know, God would help us all better understand the truth as we approach these times. But we need to understand that the, the scriptures do make distinctions. You have to rightfully divide the word of truth or rightfully handle the scripture. Otherwise, you can get in a lot of trouble. For instance, what if someone opened up the Bible to you and they said, hey, look right here. It says that you can't eat shellfish. It says you can't eat any pork, no pork chops, no bacon, no shrimp. Ah, and by the way, you need to keep the Sabbath. Look, it's right here, man. Oh, and look, you know, you, you can't, you know, you need to stay in your home all day on Saturday. And, and by the way, have you been circumcised yet? I know you're 45 years old. But, you know, I, I can help you keep this, obey the scripture. Would you line up and say, yeah, it's right there in the Bible. If you were a new Christian or a professing Christian, had been a professing Christian for years, but not studied the scripture, you didn't understand that there's an old covenant and a new covenant, you might line up and say, okay, chop that extra skin off. I got to obey the Lord. Ouch, you know. Well, if it's what the scriptures call, well, you'd be in big trouble. If you were doing that to obey the Lord and be right with God, you'd be in big trouble. Because the book of Galatians, Acts chapter 15, some of the book of Colossians, the book of Hebrews, is a lot about this subject because it warns about being brought under the law of Moses that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament that was never meant for the, the entire world. It was temporary. As a, as a tutor that was to, or a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. 
So when we go to John 1.17, we read this. For his fullness we have all received. That is the fullness of Jesus. And the grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. But then it goes on to say grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, the law of Moses. Grace and truth comes through Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. We don't try to keep the law of Moses to be right with God. We're saved strictly by what Jesus did for us on the cross and pouring out his blood and shedding his blood. How are you saved today? You're saved by what Jesus did for you on the cross through faith, amen? Do you have to keep the law of Moses to be right with God? No. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, you know, Paul says, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is really not another but if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he goes on to repeat that in verse 9. And then chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Stand fast in the freedom for with Christ has set you free. I Meaning stay free in Christ. Talking to those who are free. Don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. I Meaning don't go back to that yoke of bondage. That's what Peter called it. He called it a yoke that our fathers couldn't bear and our forefathers couldn't bear. Why would we put it on the Gentiles, he said. Jesus said, come to me for my yoke is easy. Amen. My burden is light. Amen. And I'll give you rest for your souls. Amen. So now that you've come to Jesus, Judaizers came and said, no, you got to keep the law of Moses too. You got to be circumcised. You got to keep the feast days. You can't eat certain meats and stuff like that. And Paul says, stand fast the freedom worth Christ to set you free. Don't be entangled in the yoke of bondage. He says, for if they come, they teach you, you know, any of you, he says, who are seeking to be justified by the law, he says, you have been cut off from the Christ. You have fallen from grace. Verse, that's verse 4. Verse 3 says, for those who are seeking to be justified, Christ will profit you nothing. He'll profit you nothing. That's serious. So you have to be serious about handling the word of truth. Because right now in the church, we have what's called the Hebrews, Hebrew Roots Movement, which is all kinds of people, false teachers, putting people under spell that they have to keep the law of Moses to be right with God. And they're internet type. I mean, they're like internet warriors. They don't usually have churches even. They're just people on the internet, you know, just telling people you got to keep the law of Moses. Yet they themselves aren't keeping it perfectly. And the Bible says if we stumble in one, we're under the whole curse, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Nobody can keep the law of Moses. That's why we need Christ. Amen? So it's important to rightfully divide the word of truth. Amen? To ha rightfully, accurately handle the word of truth in these areas, you know? Uh, the Bible does make some clear distinctions. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. Now let's apply this to prophecy. Now, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not at all saying that the issue of how long the day of the Lord is is anywhere close to what covenant you're under, okay? That becomes a salvific issue. This becomes an issue of prophecy, which is fascinating and I believe very important and can have huge effects on us, but uh, you may have a different understanding of the day of the Lord and how long it is and so forth, and it's, we will lovingly discuss it with one another. However, if you're telling people you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved, I love you, man. You've got to repent, though, from that, and you cannot share that with anybody. And actually, you can't be here if you're going to tell people that they've got to keep the law of Moses because that's a false teaching. But where we can, differ, we can differ on prophecy and discuss it, Isaiah 61, look at this radical, wonderful prophecy about the coming Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 1, God is upon me, Okay? That's speak, uh, speaking of Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. That's gospel, the good news. In the Greek, it's in the New Testament, it's euangelion. To be afflicted. To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim, pro proclaim liberty to the captives. I love that. How many are grateful that Jesus brought you liberty and you used to be captive? Amen. And freedom to prisoners. 
Look at verse two now. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And what? The day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Now it's interesting. In verse two, it's very interesting. There's two things happening there. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That sounds good, amen? Amen. Praise the Lord, the favorable year of the Lord. Oh, whoa, wait a second. And the what? Day of vengeance of our God. Wow. Day of vengeance of our God. Now what's very interesting about this whole thing is there were different passages because one speaks of a, a, a day of grace and favor. The other speaks of a day of vengeance, you know. And there were a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament. Some that spoke of this day of grace and mercy and peace and others that spoke of this day of vengeance and so forth. There were passages about the coming Messiah. That could be really confusing because some of the passages talked about how the Messiah would come in great judgment as a son of David and he'd bring wrath upon the earth in the day of the Lord and many would be wiped out and destroyed. Whoo, man, powerful. The Davidic king prophecies about the Messiah. Yet there were other prophecies about the Messiah that were, you know, he's going to suffer He's going to be afflicted. Even the, the Mishnahs, the commentaries on Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament by Jews talked about how the Messiah would suffer. Remember, he'd be pierced for our transgressions. He'd be bruised for our iniquities. He, by our stripes, we'd be healed and so forth. And they tried to understand what this meant. So guess what the Jews did? No kidding, before Jesus came. They understood that there must be, they thought, many of them, there must be two Messiahs. Yeah, Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah Ben David, Messiah Ben Joseph, son of Joseph, Messiah Ben David, son of David. So there must be, they're trying to figure out how these prophecies fit together. There's one that's going to come and bring peace and, and so forth, and, but he's going to reign after he brings vengeance. But there's another Messiah who's going to suffer. The suffering Messiah was Messiah Ben Joseph. The Messiah that would be a military leader would be Messiah Ben David. The Jews were trying to understand that. They weren't rightly dividing the word truth. At least they were looking into it, trying to understand. Well, what's going on here? Wait, there's a favorable day of the Lord? Then there's the day of vengeance. Go to Luke chapter 4. And we see a rightfully dividing the word of truth. Luke chapter 4. Now, this is right after Jesus' baptism. And some fascinating things happen here. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, uh, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. No chapter breaks, by the way, no verses. He just opened the scroll and he found what we call Isaiah 61 that we just read from. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover, uh, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Wow. Notice right there that Jesus abruptly stops mid-sentence. Now for you, it's not mid-sentence. You have verse 19 and a period at the end. But he's quoting from Isaiah 61, where there's a comma 
not in the Hebrew, but in the English, there's a comma. It says, and what? The day of vengeance of, right, of our God. He stops it right before the day of vengeance. Why? Well, it wasn't just for a dramatic pause as a preacher, you know. That's not what's going on right there. Uh, it's because this was an anticipation of this prophecy, this first part of the prophecy, the favor day of the Lord, was in anticipation of his first coming. His first coming. And it's interesting because Luke 4.20 makes it clear that Jesus ended there. Look at verse 20. And he closed the book and gave it back to the intendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Wow. And then it's interesting. Jesus stopped where we have a comma in the English, right? Uh, in Isaiah 61. And he closed the book and sat down. Then we read in verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been what? Fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that amazing? So he quotes from Isaiah 61 where it talks about this day of grace, but it also talks about this day of vengeance. But he stops right after the day of grace and closes the book. Is Jesus being seeker sensitive here? No, he's not. It's in reference to his first coming. There's not two different messiahs. There's two different comings of the same messiah. The first time he came was to pay for our sins and offer grace to the world, amen? The second time he comes, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's the point of man wants to die, but after this is judgment. And then it says in verse 28 that he appeared the first time in reference to sin. That was to deal with our sins, to die for us. But the second time he's coming is in relation to judgment. That's the day of vengeance, his second coming. Do you see how Jesus is rightfully handling the word of truth? Now, you or me, let's be honest, we're reading that back then. We're not like, this is the Messiah's first coming. And this is his second coming, right? Uh, but for Jesus, he inspired it. He knew exactly what he was saying. And many of these things were hidden for a purpose until he revealed them as the Messiah. Now, it's interesting we could also read, so what I'm pointing out to you is sometimes there's a distinction when you read a text. It's important to understand that. Now go to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Notice there's going to be another distinction here that you may not see in the text. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. At that time, the people, uh, that time, your people, everyone who has found written the book will be rescued. Now we know at that time when this takes place, the, your people, specifically of Israel right there, right? We know what happens and why Michael rises and what happens because you go to Revelation 12 and you see that Satan, because Michael, we just read, stands guard over the people of Israel. Satan's cast down, right? And when Satan's cast down in the middle of the tribulation period and he fills the Antichrist, who sits in the temple and they persecute the people of God, guess what? God lets the Jews go into where? The wilderness and protects them. He rescues them and saves the remnant for 1,260 days where he feeds them. Okay? So there's a lot we don't understand until, and by the way, the end of the book of Daniel, not long, a few verses after this, it says seal up this book. Right? You read the book of Revelation, it says don't seal this book. The end of the book of Revelation. So you read the book of Revelation and later Daniel starts to say, wow, this all fits together. But notice what else was going to happen. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust, 
of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to what? Disgrace, Disgrace and everlasting contempt. Okay, right there. How many resurrections do we see right there? Two. Two. One of resurrection, those in the dust will be resurrected to life, but others will be resurrected to eternal contempt and disgrace. How about going to Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 and 29? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Verse 29. And will come forth those who have done good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the uh, evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He spoke of two different resurrections. A resurrection of life and a resurrection to judgment. Or as King James says, a resurrection to damnation. There's two different judgments. That's in verse 29. Matthew, uh, John chapter 5 verse 29. And will come forth those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, if I just read those texts to you, we would come to the conclusion that there's two resurrections, but you would probably think they happen at the same period of time, right? If you didn't know other scripture and revelation is not sealed. When does the resurrection of the righteous happen and when does the resurrection of the wicked happen? Over a thousand years apart. Rightfully dividing the word of truth. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And what does all this have to do with how long the day of the Lord is? A whole lot, actually. Revelation chapter 20. Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, and then you see the effects of his coming in Revelation 19. He comes in verse 11 and following the beasts and the false prophet are taken. They're thrown alive like a fire. The armies of the wicked are destroyed at the end of Revelation 19. And then we read, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven holding a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into an abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast and his image, and had not received the mark of the, on their forehead and on their hand, and they what? They came to life resurrection. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until when? The thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, those that come to life and reign with Christ. But the rest don't come to life until after the thousand years is over. Are you with me? So when you read Daniel chapter 12, when you read Matthew chapter 5, without the book of Revelation, you don't know that it's at the front end, the back end of a thousand year reign of Christ. And then you read Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And then you have the great white throne judgment, right? They're raised to life, the wicked. And if their names are not found right in the last book of life, verse 15, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Are you with me? Amen. Do you see how Jesus divides the day of the Lord, or the day of, I'm sorry, the favorable day of the Lord, with the coming day of vengeance? First and second coming, day of vengeance. However, we also see a division with the first 69 weeks and the 70th week. We've talked about that already, amen? And if you go to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, you'll see that between the first 69 weeks, then the Messiah comes and he's cut off, the temple's destroyed, and later on, the seventh week comes. That's rightfully dividing the word of truth as well. 
okay? And our pre-trib brethren see it that way as well. There's a, there's a lot of truth to some of what the pre-tribs believe because it's what the post-tribs believe because it's what the Bible says. There is a 69 weeks and a seven. There is two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked, a thousand years apart. Amen? Amen. And this is really cool when you see how this all fits together. Now, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And by the way, what's happening during that thousand years? There's still, you know, there's not people dying like they were dying during the tribulation period, but then there's a millennial period. Then you live to 100 years old when you die. So death is still going on, but it's not like it used to be. You live 100, you die when you're 100 years old during the millennium. Now we won't die at all. We have incorruptible bodies. We'll reign with Christ during that thousand years. Amen. When he comes back in the Mount of Olives, we'll reign with him for a thousand years. But the wicked, if they die at 100 years old, because they're like a, a kid dying, says. But then guess what? They'll rebel against the Lord at the end. And Revelation 20, at the end of the millennium, Satan's let loose for a short time and he destroys them with fire, the Father from heaven. When they come up against the saints and against Jesus, who's reigning during that thousand years uh, in Jerusalem. Now, look at this though. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So when Christ rose from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who fell asleep. I don't have time to get into that. I wish I did. It's so rich. For since a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So guess what? Christ the first fruits, right, of the resurrection. And then afterwards, we're going to be raised, amen, at his coming. Guess what happens between this verse and the next verse? A thousand years, <laughs> just like between the two resurrections. Look what he says in the very next verse. Then comes the end, which end? When he hands over the kingdom of, to God the Father, and he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. That's at the end of the millennium, when the Father comes down with the new heaven and the new earth and reigns with, with Christ, has already been reigning for a thousand years. For he must reign, that is Jesus, until he has put what? All his enemies under his feet. So right now, when Christ is in heaven, he's not reigning yet, it says, okay? And when he comes and establishes his reign for a thousand years, he's going to reign during the millennial period, during that thousand years, right? Until every enemy is put under his feet, amen? And Satan is finally utterly destroyed, and all the wicked that come against, new, or come against Jerusalem before the new Jerusalem comes at the end of the tribulation period. Then look at verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. That means Jesus is an exception to that, who put all things in subjection to him. I should say the Father is an exception to that. The Father is not subjected to Jesus. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and in all. Okay? Now, isn't that interesting? Because we see this thousand-year break, a break between verses 23 and 24, where there's two different things going on, where Christ is reigning for a thousand years, and then where the Father is given authority, and Jesus is subjected to the Father throughout all eternity as the Son of God, even as now he's at the right hand of the Father. So it's quite interesting when you look at this, there's that distinction again when you understand what the Bible teaches about the millennium. Then that makes sense. But if you didn't understand Revelation, you wouldn't understand. You think it all just happens at the same time. Same with 2 Peter chapter 3. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
When you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, go ahead and go to verse 7. This is quite fascinating to me. By the word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Isn't that interesting? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, when does he come like a thief? Immediately after the tribulation to destroy the wicked, amen? The day of the Lord, right? But watch what he describes next. He's going to describe what happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ. So there's a thousand years in between, verse 10, okay, and the rest of verse 10. Look at this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up, right? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? That's when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Then you have that thousand-year break. And then what happens? Because in which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Wow. Think about that. When Jesus Christ comes back like a thief in the night, is this earth just totally gone and melted and all the elements burnt up with heat? Or does he come back and put his feet on the Mount of Olives? He comes and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, amen? There'll be some renovating going on. It's going to be like Eden, amen? But there's not this cosmic meltdown where the earth melts in fervent heat. In fact, most uh, dispensationalists, pre-tribs, mid-tribs, you know, non-dispensationalists like me, which would be a, you know, I'm somewhat dispensational, but not dyed-in-the-wool dispensational, uh, we all, pre, mid, post, believe this refers to the very end of the millennium, this fiery judgment where everything's melted. Most, most do anyway, okay? Because this describes an utter meltdown of the cosmos that, with fervent heat, okay? And when you go to Revelation chapter 20, when Christ comes, he reigns for a thousand years. Zechariah 14, he st sits, stands on the Mount of Olives, the Gospels in the book of Acts, Jesus is coming just like he returned. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, amen, and he's going to rule. But after the thousand years is over and you have the great white throne judgment, what does it say? Heaven and earth fled from his face after the thousand years. And then he makes a new heaven and a new earth. Remember that? We're studying that right now, after the millennium. So what's going on here? Well, <laughs> the day of the Lord, I believe, refers to that last day when Christ comes back, quite literally. But I believe it also refers to that whole thousand-year period. Okay? Wait, you're saying it like a thousand years like a day? Yeah, that's what we just read. We just read that. <laughs> that's how God views it. A thousand years like a day. A day is like a thousand years. And now if there was no evidence that the day of the Lord was also describing the millennial period, then I would probably wouldn't jump to that or, or come to that conclusion. And it's a soft conclusion. I'm open because that's, it's one of those things that I think there's some clarity on that, but I don't teach it as though you have to believe this. It's not one of those dogmatic doctrines. But watch this. It's pretty interesting. Uh, by the way, Dwight Pentecost, he was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, the top seminary to push pre-tribulationism. 
Guess what he believed? This is what he taught in his book called Things to Come. Uh, Things to Come, very popular among pre-tribbers. A study in biblical eschatology, page 174. Listen to this. The term day of the Lord, or that day, is not a term which applies to a 24-hour period, but rather the whole program of events, including the tribulation period. Not, that's not true. But he gets this next part, right? The second advent program and the entire millennial age. Okay, that's how he viewed it. And I agree with pre-tribbers in some areas and that's many pre-tribs hold that view. That's also, the day of the Lord is when he comes back and it also refers to, just like the tribulation period is the day of man, okay, when Christ comes to reign, amen, and wipe out the wicked, now he's reigning for a thousand years, it's his day, okay? And I believe it refer to a literal day. I have no problem with that. I believe it does refer to a literal day, but there's also scriptures that indicate that it encompasses also uh, the millennial reign of Christ. By the way, Tertullian, the early church father, who coined the term Trinity and was premillennial, post-trib, like we are, he seems to have the same understanding. He says, our prayers are directed towards the end of this world, just after he talks about the second coming of Christ, to the passing away thereof of the great day of the Lord. He says, of his wrath and vengeance, the last day. Now he calls it the last day. Look what he calls the last day. Which is hidden from all and known to none but the Father, although announced beforehand by signs and wonders and the dissolution of the elements and the conflict of nations. He puts the conflict of nations and come against Christ in the second advent and also, when he does this cosmic meltdown, all is being part of the day of the Lord. Quite interesting. Very interesting. Listen to Joel chapter 3, verse 14 through 18. You can go there too. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. Now look at verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. Verse 17, listen to this. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, listen to this. He's still talking about the day of the Lord. And in that day, verse 18, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk and all the brooks, uh, all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go from house, the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Wow. He includes the millennial period with the day of the Lord. He says that day. He's called the day of the Lord when the wicked are destroyed. But he says in that day, this is going to be happening too. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 8. Listen to this. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation. This is Armageddon again. Uh, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Now look at verse 11. In that day, same day, in that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from you the midst of your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Then verses 14 through following, shout, for joy, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O Israel, rejoice and exult in your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you and has cleared, away, uh, cleared the way of your enemies. And the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said of Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will, quiet, be, qui uh, he will be quiet in his love. And he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. There's be praise and worship you know, uh, associated with the day of the Lord. 
This one is really, really cool. Look at Zechariah. We know Zechariah 14 with regard to the day of the Lord. Look what happens on the day of the Lord. Verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. And by the way, everybody understands this. All premillennial believers understand this is speaking of Armageddon. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you and will be divided among you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. That has never happened yet, guys. This is why preterism is just a joke. I will, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not uh, be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out, will go forth, and fight against those nations. That's Armageddon, just like we read Revelation 19. As when he fights on the day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's the second coming of Christ. Obviously, everything wasn't, there wasn't a dissolution of all the elements at that point yet. That didn't happen until after the thousand years, okay? In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem to the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle to the east and the west and the very large valley, uh, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Wow, there's going to be a huge earthquake. We know that at the end. Verse 5, you will flee by the valley of my mountains and the valley of the mountains to reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake of the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and the holy ones, check this out, and the holy ones with him. That's the second coming, right? But what's interesting, this book, uh, this chapter also includes the millennial reign of Christ within that day. Look at verse eight. And in that day, same day, and in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. He's going to be king over everybody at that time. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. See, he's the only one exalted. Okay, on the day of the Lord. And his name will be the only one. Verse 10. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate or the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel uh, to the king's wine presses, people will live in it. And there will be no longer any, be any curse nor Jerusalem, or, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. So this is all happening during that day, which is very interesting because back up now to verses six and seven, read what it says in between this. In that day, there will be no light. Uh, the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. And it will come about at the evening time that there will be light. What's interesting about this is this applies to the second advent, this day. But also it encompasses, as we read on, in that day, also the millennial period, which I think is interesting. Some people take Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, listen to Hosea 6, 2, as a cryptic prophecy. He will revive us after two days. Some believe that refers after his first coming, right? He comes after 2,000 years or so. He will revive us. He will raise us up on the third day that he, we may live before him. So many understand that to be the 1,000 years, the 1,000 years too, comes back. We don't, I, I don't say that because I don't know for sure. I want to be really careful here, right? But a lot of the church fathers felt there was, you know, after 2,000 years after Christ, it's in the church fathers, or thereabouts around there, right? And then you'd have the second coming of Christ. And historically, many have understood thousand years a day, days, thousand years. And when Peter talks about the day of the Lord coming like a thief, that Peter's referring to the day of the Lord being a thousand year period of time. We can't say that 
uh, this is exactly what Peter's saying here. Because we can't be absolute. I can't be absolute about it. Some people could be dogmatic. People say, no, it's a thousand-year period. It actually would be a little more than a thousand years because it would also include the dissolution in that short time right after Satan's bound and the dissolution of the cosmos and the elements. But Peter does talk about the dissolution of the cosmos, the meltdown of the earth and the cosmos and the need for a new heaven and a new earth. He does refer to that as the day of the Lord. See what I'm saying? So Peter seems to be referring, so I believe there'll be a literal day of the Lord when he comes back and destroys the, the Antichrist, but that because per Peter, a thousand years a day, days a thousand years, uh, that it looks like it very well could encompass the millennial period. And some people want to be dogmatic on certain things. I'm not super dogmatic on things like this because I say it could entail also the millennial period. I lean that way, but I'm not absolutely sure. So I'm just, I'm honest with you, okay? Uh, it looks like it. I know the day of the Lord is at the end of the tribulation period. I know it's when Christ comes back. I know it's when he stands on the Mount of Olives, amen? I know it encompasses him bringing his kingdom in for sure. Uh, but is the whole millennial period part of that? Well, is that what Peter has in mind? Uh, let's go back and let's end with that passage, 2 Peter chapter 3. And you get there, and let's go ahead and just read verse, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Right? Since all these things, let the supply to your life are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because in which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. What I did with you, brothers and sisters, is we went and saw these times, day of favor, day of vengeance. You wouldn't know they were divided. They're divided, but they're also, guess what? Part of God's program. 69 weeks and a last week, but guess what? People put the resurrections together. People put the 70 weeks together. They shouldn't. People put the resurrections, they call it the general resurrection, many ah mills, okay, post mills. Oh, it's all one resurrection at the end. No, we see it's divided by a thousand years. So what I'm saying is when you look at Peter, he seems to be putting this whole period together as the day of the Lord. That looks like what he's doing there, okay? Unless you want to say, ah, well, really he's referring to his coming and all that's going to happen at his first coming. Doesn't seem to fit because there's not this, you don't read about this, you read about some cosmic disturbances, radically so. But when Jesus steps in the Mount of Olives, it's the same Mount of Olives that was already there. It's just been a radical earthquake. Do you understand me? But the day of the Lord entails also the... Now this makes a lot of sense. Why? Because that shows you the first resurrection of the righteous and the last resurrection before and at the end of the day of the Lord and before the conflagration when everything's melted down are all part of the day of the Lord still. Even though they're separated by over a thousand years. Are you with me? So it's quite amazing when you look at it. So that's why I lean to all this being the day of the Lord at the very end. However, whatever may be the truth in regard to that in, in an absolute sense, one thing we know for sure, the day of the Lord is not the tribulation period, amen? amen. And it comes after all those events and it is at Christ's second coming and that's where it begins. How long it takes place, mm, you can talk about it and over dinner or whatever, you know? It's not gonna... It's not going to uh, affect your salvation one way or another, amen? 
what's going to affect your salvation is whether you're right with Jesus when he comes back. Amen. And that's the key. Make sure you're right with Jesus. Amen. Because there's a day of vengeance coming, and he's going to make a new heaven and new earth where and dwell with righteousness. And only the righteous will see God, the scriptures say. So you must make sure you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Amen. That you've been forgiven and that you're ready for when he returns. Amen. All right. Can we all please stand?